This week, I'm talking with Matt Purcell, Head of Digital Learning at Canberra Grammar School. Matt's been teaching at Canberra Grammar since 2008. As Head of Digital Innovation, Matt's responsible for senior school IT programs, along with many of the curricular and co-curricular digital technology initiatives at the school, including organising the San Francisco and Silicon Valley Tour. Matt founded and established the Code Cadets Group in 2011, and one year later created, wrote and implemented the school's brand new Year 9 and Year 10 IT curriculum, with the Year 9 web design and app development, and Year 10 iOS app development courses as part of that. In 2017, Matt was named an Apple Distinguished Educator in recognition of his work in teaching and coding. When he's not teaching, Matt enjoys coding and developing software, along with contributing to open source projects. He's won several major hackathons and programming competitions, including a major national category in GovHack 2015, three categories in GovHack 2014, and the $10,000 first prize in Hack Brisbane in 2012 for his iOS Bike Brisbane app. I had the great fortune of meeting Matt when I was involved as a participant in GovHack 2016 and 2017 in Canberra. It was great to chat with Matt about his work around hackathons and practical digital learning and experiential education. I'm talking today with Matt Purcell in the amazing Snow Centre at Canberra Grammar School. Matt is the Head of Digital Innovation at Canberra Grammar and has been the ACD ACT Director of GovHack. Can you give us a little bit of a background of your work in education and innovation? Sure, David. So first, thanks for inviting me to chat to you today. I've been now teaching at Canberra Grammar School for 10 years. My background, university, I did a degree in IT and commerce and then honours and then my grad dip ed. I only really decided to go into teaching and education about halfway through my university degree when I was also coaching orienteering here at Canberra Grammar School. Orienteering is a sport I've been doing now for about ooh, 25 years myself. Uh, I got introduced to it here when I was a student at Canberra Grammar actually in year three. I really enjoyed working with the students, enjoyed teaching them things and also saw that I guess the lifestyle of a teacher involved being a, being a jack of all trades, master of none and getting lots of interesting opportunities to do various exciting things. So I decided to make it a full-time career and it has not disappointed. I get to do all sorts of fun, fun things, get my area of specialty, which is obviously IT and software development, uh, but also get to do a huge range of other things. And in my role as head of digital innovation at Canberra Grammar, it's my job to, I guess, drive our um, students' engagement in digital technologies and not just within the school curriculum, but doing lots of projects that are more outreaching and engaging with external organisations like GovHack, which we've hosted here for the last two years and also been participants in the competition since 2012, and provide our students with really those authentic contexts about what it's like to be working with technology in the real world. I'll come back to GovHack in a moment, but what's an example of students' engagement with, say, a real-world project and how, how do you go about doing that? A project that we engaged in this year that we were really fortunate to be invited to engage in was with Microsoft HoloLens. So HoloLens is a 
a new device in sort of the mixed reality or augmented reality sphere where it puts virtual objects over your real world environment. And we were invited by Pearson and the University of Canberra to participate in a trial of HoloLens in high schools. So we're actually the first high school in the world to be using these. Most of the other trials were focused on tertiary education, but they wanted specifically one that would be in a high school and more so one that was outside of the United States. So we got invited to participate in that. And the primary purpose of that was that Pearson developed applications for HoloLens, a bit like iPhone apps, but they run HoloLens, not say iPhone. And that was done in consultation with our staff. So there were subject specific applications. So the challenge was discovering what applications would be suited towards that mixed and augmented reality platform that could help drive student engagement and help improve student learning outcomes. As sort of a side project off that, some of our students thought it was great that we had access to these devices. We were very fortunate to have access to HoloLens hardware and they thought, why don't we develop an app for HoloLens? So they spent three weeks of their summer holiday break here at the end of last year and beginning of this year, developing an app called HoloElements, which is a periodic table of the elements for HoloLens. So it allows you to see in three dimensions the uh, atomic structure of elements while not losing context with your real world surroundings. So you can still interact with your peers, with your teacher while you're using this application. And they took that from concept through to implementation, launched it onto the Microsoft Store in March. So it's actually still available on the Microsoft Store. It's a five-star app. I strongly suggest everyone downloads it. And it caught the attention of Microsoft as sort of a um, additional, I guess, artifact of the project. And Microsoft came and featured the students, did a video about them, sort of telling the story of how they developed this platform. And that provided the students with the opportunity to engage directly with Microsoft on a brand new technology that was still in development and have, uh, I guess, influence and feedback regarding that technology. Excellent. That's something that's really the, the way in which education is changing and shifting now. It just opens up opportunities like that, doesn't it? It does. We're fortunate to be in a area that is, I guess, it, well, experiencing tremendous growth. And it's an area which really captivates a lot of students because they want to go and work in Silicon Valley in the future. And we want to provide our students while they're still at school with the opportunity to see what it's like or even just get a glimpse of what it is like to work in that sphere and sort of interact with, the, with these enormous high-tech companies. And yeah, we really enjoy providing, providing them with that opportunity. It's fun for me too. Yeah. <laughs> I saw a, get a little bit of a glimpse of that with GovHack and you're the director of the ACT GovHack event, and which is how I got to, got to know you. And yes, yes I, I was the director. This is, this is my last year and I think now my duties are officially done regarding GovHack. Oh, right. <laughs> so how did you get involved in GovHack? Because there's a huge number of the Canberra Grammar students who are involved in that activity. What was the basis for it to begin with and how did it evolve? in your time? It sort of traces back to 2012. GovHack started, I think, in sort of ACT. There was, a, there was the first kind of GovHack event in 2009, but it really started to get traction in about 2012, and the event was held out at the University of Canberra Inspire Centre. And I just heard about it on the um, grapevine from one of the directors at the school who was interested in what we were doing, because Co-Cadets was still also in, in very much its infancy back then and said, hey, this is 48 hour hackathon. Like you might not be up for it this year, but maybe give it some thought for next year. And I'm like, no, we're up for it this year. <laughs> so it was actually myself and a year 10 student that decided to go and just compete in the competition. So we worked and we ended up coming second in a category that year. 
it kind of gave us a insight into what the competition was like. It was the first time Canberra Grammar had actually done any kind of hackathon. And since then, we've become participants in hackathons. So the next year, we got a group of students together. We got about 15 students to participate in GovHack. Then the year after, we had about 25. Then year after that, we had about 30. Then last year and this year, we had about 50 of our students competing in the competition. And they just really enjoy it because it, for students who really love doing this kind of thing, be it developing software or doing design and all of those components that come together to make a hackathon team successful, it provides them with a really great opportunity to exercise their skills, but also interact with other people, which I think is super important. So I really like it when I see the students chatting with other participants at GovPack, asking what they're doing, finding out sort of their experiences and then getting feedback about their project from people who are actually in this industry or have particular expertise. With that project, what would you see some of the challenges for your students to be and what sort of skills do they need to develop to be successful in that team environment in a very intense short period of time? So I think the biggest challenge for them and something which a lot of them misestimate, if that's a word, misestimate, is what they can actually achieve in the time frame. In a lot of cases they have a goal of what they want to achieve and they often do fall short of it and that's because Things sound great on paper, but when you come to the harsh reality of actually implementing them and you hit all of these issues that you didn't expect, it just grinds up time. So I even find that in my own GovHack entries. So when I wasn't organising GovHack for the last two years, I was competing as well, just in my own team, the students were competing as well. So um, even I find that you have the best intentions and you get hit with a brick wall of reality and it's like, that's, this isn't going to work. So it's time to sort of downscale what you want to do. And I think that's something that just comes with experience. And I think it's really great that they learn it at this stage because like something like GovHack and these competitions, they're fun, forgiving environments. And it provides the students with that experience about, hmm, well, when I was doing GovHack, like those many years ago, I had this objective, but I only reached this. I wonder why, and I wonder how I can use that knowledge in sort of less forgiving future projects that I might undertake. Sort of regarding your second question about working in teams in that intense environment, what we always say is that this is a fun competition. The most important thing is you still all walk away as friends at the end of it. And they all do, they all, they're all really good friends and it's great that they can rally around their common interest which is developing interesting projects most of the time using technology. And they can do a project that uses a technology that they're all interested in. So we had projects this year that surround like virtual and augmented reality and those students were really interested in that kind of thing. We had projects that involved like um, laser cutting, so physical projects and that's students who are really interested in more of the design aspects rather than the software development aspects. And I think it's great that they can find a project that does suit their interests. I had a great time again this year, so uh, yes. You like the ice cream? I did, I liked the gelato, that was a nice touch and the food was excellent. Oh, we try. We found that the, the, uh, the best way to keep everyone happy and avoid a small scale riot was to have good food, so. Definitely, was well worth it. From the projects that you've seen over the years, not necessarily just involved with GovHack, but say a student project, is there something that's really stood out you've seen from a student that you didn't expect and it's like, wow, that's, that's really innovative or that's really, they've challenged themselves in quite a different way that yep. was unexpected. Yeah. We actually have, and 
Probably an example of that this year was in our year 10 course, which is iOS application development. The students learn how to develop apps for the iPhone and iPad. They have a major project at the end of the year, which was actually just submitted a few weeks ago. It's really impressive when these students tackle a project that involves a new technology or a new API. So this year, with the release of iOS 11, there was really exciting stuff surrounding like augmented and virtual reality and also machine learning. So we had one group of students develop augmented reality ping pong game. So it used ARKit, which is the new framework in iOS 11, to create a um, virtual ping pong table and then you can actually play with your phone. And that's something which I found really impressive and I guess it was more of a proof of concept, it wasn't a polished finished app, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have expected that. But it involved a whole heap of advanced things which we just don't have scope to teach in the course due to time constraints and complexity constraints. But using things like Scene Kit, so they did all their 3D rendering within the app, and also AR Kit, and they were developing with AR Kit while it was still in beta. So, and the implications of that is it's buggy, so if something goes wrong, they're not quite sure whether it's their code or whether there's something wrong with, with the framework itself that Apple has to fix, and also challenges inherent in doing something when there's very few resources available to help you with it. In a lot of cases, they couldn't just go on Stack Overflow and search for a problem there, I should say, because it's such a new technology and people have, probably haven't experienced the problem yet. And also the fact that it's under non-disclosure, so you can't publicly discuss it. So it creates all sorts of interesting issues for them. But I'm really impressed when students persevere and to use those technologies. And it shows that they're genuinely interested in it because they're willing to invest enormous amounts of time just researching it, trying things, searching whether they, what they're encountering is actually a bug or, or it's actually something wrong with their code and then be able to produce an end result from that. You touched on a very interesting point there with the perseverance and unfortunately a lot of teenagers today, they'll, if they can't get it instantly, they'll give up and I, I think that's, that's one thing that I've seen through the education side that I'm working with. How do you instill in them yeah. the ability to be perseverant in, in face of adversity, yeah. but also how do you work with failure? So if, if they do fail on something, yes. how do you help them recover from that and go, well, this isn't the end of the world mm. and move forward? Mm. It's an interesting issue you raise. Like it's, it's not all rainbows and leprechauns here. We do have quite a few students who haven't gotten to the stage where they can pers persevere through problems. And it's always a challenge to see how to deal with that because it's such, a, it's such an individual thing. I guess it comes down to persevere through a problem. You really need to motivate the student to have a genuine passion to towards what they're doing because if they don't have that underlying passion and really want to do it, then yeah, they'll, they'll do all your coursework, they'll do all your classwork and homework, but they're not gonna go that extra step further where they take on a complex project, they'll really wanna push through it. I think it's sort of, yeah, getting to that point of having the passion, and some students, you just won't. They, they, yeah. they do say the subject of IT because for one reason or another, it was probably the, the lesser of many, many evils or something like that in their elective subject choices or whatever. At the same time, you also do get the very passionate students. For those that, I guess, aren't as passionate as others, it's, it's probably a case of managing, managing expectations. And in a lot of ways, as the teacher, I have a big responsibility to do that, to make sure that when they propose to do something, it's gonna be challenging for them, but not insurmountably challenging yeah. and not to the point where 
they're going to get halfway through and give up because it's all too hard versus students who are extremely passionate and just spend their weekends just coding for fun where you can set them a task which to be honest you're not quite sure potentially how you'd solve yourself you're reasonably certain they would find a solution but it's going to require a lot of work and then they'll, they'll just nut away at it like for weeks on end most likely they'll eventually hit a solution to it so i think there's sort of that management of expectations in terms of how to deal with failure I think that sort of idea of failure falls into two categories. Students who fail because they just couldn't be bothered doing the work and students who try their hardest but still, but still fail. And that might be students who are top performers and the task is just too difficult. It might also be students who are not necessarily the best students but still put a lot of effort in but it just doesn't click. For students who just can't be bothered doing it and don't put the effort in, well, it's like, well, I mean, what can we really do here? They, they, well, they're not going to reflect on their learning if, if they just don't put any effort, are they? Not. And I think, fortunately, we don't really get too many of those kinds of students because the subject's very self-selective. Like, if you're not willing to put in the effort, it becomes pretty apparent that it's probably not, not right for you. But that said, assuming students are willing to put in the effort, then we'll support them as much as we can. So providing them with additional resources, providing them with additional tutoring to get them to that point. So, as you said, it's a case of providing them with that opportunity to reflect, reflect on it mm. and reflect on what went well and what went bad. And we try and do that in a very incremental way through a long-term project. So halfway through the project, we have our status updates where they have to present to everybody what their wins are and also what their blockers are. So they can sort of celebrate their success, but they, and they can also tell us about what's blocking them and what's causing them problems so that we can help address it at that early stage as well but even if it gets past that right like right to the end and it doesn't work out it's like well you tried and you now know what works and what doesn't work so you can use that to inform future decisions that you might make in terms of future projects yeah. oh, very good. that happens to me as well i yeah. do lots of stuff that doesn't work out i think it happens to everybody yeah, it's, well, uh, yeah. <laughs> but it's worth trying and Indeed. yeah yeah and I, I think that's something i've always talked about with students of mine is if you don't try, well, you will never know what the outcome could have been, would have been, should have been. Yeah. So yeah, got to give it a go. Thinking about the future and where you see innovation going in particular with robots and AI, yeah. from an educational point of view, where do you see that going? Then the other area is the sort of skill set that students today need to be developing to be able to cope with that new world with a lot of automation and a lot of AI. To be honest, robotics is an area I haven't really looked into so much, being more of a software end person. However, sort of coupled with AI, it's obviously the future, and we're already seeing machine learning embedded into, all, into many of the products which we're using. I think it comes down sort of in, ro in terms of robotics to the fact that capital, well, speaking economically, capital is always a substitute for labour, well most of the time it's a substitute for labour, so we are going to see increased automation in industries that have traditionally been labour intensive. And that's why we are, I guess, seeing the almost that skill shift towards employment in the labour intensive industries versus employment in the industries which are going to be writing and developing the technology that will probably end up repla replacing those labour-based industries. I think that's sort of the future direction we're going, whether people like it or not, that's the direction it, it is going. We're seeing that with 
automation of factories, we've seen that with automation of cars as well. I mean, my big prediction is that probably within 20 years, 20 to 30 years, it'll either be illegal for a human to drive a car or prohibitively expensive because insurance would be sky high versus the car driving itself. So I always challenge my students saying, oh, don't bother getting your L's because you probably won't need to drive in the future, but they still get their L's. So it's like, okay. There's, I guess, in the context of preparing, preparing the students for that in the future, I mean, there's all the talk about like everyone needs to learn how to code. It's sort of the new literacy. It should sit beside like um, maths and English. I, I disagree with that. I don't think everyone needs to learn how to code, and I certainly don't think that it's as important as maths or English, which are things that you use every single day. You don't use coding every single day. What I think is important is the more general concept of computational thinking, and this is nothing new. Everyone's been talking about this as well. The fact it's important to understand how computers and, and systems more generally work, because everyone's going to be working with these systems in the future, and there's only going to be a, a subset of people who are actually programming them that need to be the, the actual coders. But I think everyone needs to have an understanding of how these systems work and the processes that are involved. So they have a, at a very high level, a, a general appreciation for how to use it efficiently and effectively. And I think that's the best way to, to sort of prepare students for the future. Uh, of course, I love it when students want to learn how to code. That's obviously my area of expertise, and I certainly encourage that. But I certainly don't think it's required for everybody, but I think it is required for everybody to have that more general computational thinking appreciation. And would you see that as probably one of the biggest challenges for education? I think it is, and I think it's a, a challenge to upskill our teachers, because ideally to teach this probably very effectively, you do want almost a computer science background because just by virtue of being a programmer and and such you sort of think in that way well, I guess same with mathematicians as well it's a challenge to upskill our teachers to teach this and have I guess subject specific experts to teach this as well and it's also a challenge to get the students to appreciate that it's more than coding it's a more general general concept because Whenever you say like digital technologies, everyone thinks coding immediately, where it's, that's, that's a portion of it. That's, I guess, the implementation of it, but it's not the more broad concept of it. So I think it does require that change in the way of thinking about what the subject involves. Because if you just think of it as coding, you're probably not get, going to get too much out of it versus if you think of it in more general terms. It's real complex problem solving, isn't it? It is, yes. So, I mean, computational thinking is is about how to break down problems and solve them in isolation and then bring them back together to form a whole. It very much is problem solving and you know, as a programmer that's what we spend a lot of our days doing, solving problems that we've mostly created in our code. <laughs> it's always good to solve a problem that you create or exactly. solving one of your own problems. Uh, sometimes yeah, when you solve a problem you create another problem or another ten problems. So. <laughs> so on that, that's a really good intro to my final question. How do you take a problem break it down and start to get the students to really understand the problem and then work towards a solution. When you're starting with younger students or students who haven't encountered this kind of thing before, real world metaphors or real world analogues really help with that a lot. The example is making a piece of Vegemite toast. You walk into class and you have the toaster, you have the bread, you have the Vegemite, you have a knife and you ask the students to give you exact instructions about what to do to make Vegemite toast. 
they'll say something immediately like, okay, get your bread and put it in the toaster. So you get the entire loaf of bread and try and shove it into the toaster because <laughs> they haven't been specific enough. Yeah. Then they go, oh, okay. So get a slice of bread and put it in the toaster. And then you start going at the packet because you can't get into it. It's a closed packet. And it's like, oh, okay. Open the packet of bread or open the loaf of bread. Yeah. Get a piece of bread out, put it into the toaster. And you do that and then you just wait. And then they realize, okay, push the toaster lever down. <laughs> So I think those, those real-world analogues really help because it helps them understand that giving a very general instruction is generally not useful. You need to be quite specific about that. And that boils down to the concept of taking a large problem and breaking it down into component steps. Because all of a sudden we have this, the larger problem, which is making Vegemite toast, and they're suddenly breaking it down into a set, set of really concise steps. And what um, uh, I guess other strategies are is like building Lego. One person has the instructions about how to build the Lego. So they're looking at the Lego instructions, which aren't written, they're just the diagrams about how to do it. And then someone else has the Lego itself, and they've got to instruct the person what to do about the, that builder being able to see the instructions. And then you get an appreciation for how specific you have to be about giving those kinds of instructions. Because yeah. you can't just say, put the block at the end because like where do I put it it's like okay place it three studs from the end of the right corner of it and giving those instructions it's very hard because I've, I've been on the receiving and the giving end <laughs> of this and, and it's very hard to do but again that, that real world metaphor real world analog provides them with that context about how specific you have to be with these instructions yeah. and again that takes that larger problem breaking it down into smaller steps to build a whole so they're really fun activities, which you can do to sort of demonstrate that. And then that can be used as a launching pad for more, I guess, abstract problems, like maybe a very basic programming or algorithm, or I should say algorithm design tasks, like working out the um, factorial of a given number, then sort of looking at that in a much more abstract way and figuring out how to solve it before actually writing it down as an algorithm. Oh, excellent. I really like that methodology. I'd love to, I'd love to even try that. I'm actually going to try that, the Lego experiment. Yeah, do it. Uh, you just need a small model, like a car or something. Like you don't want to make, build a ship or something. That would be very hard. But like yeah. just building a little buggy car. Yeah, you just have one person's the engineer of the instructions, the other person's yeah. the builder, and you have to just in, talk them through how to build it. Can take hours, yeah, and it can involve shouting as well. <laughs> I can imagine all the all the team dynamics, positive and negative, Absolutely. would all come out in that as well. It does. So yeah. no, that's a fun activity. Yeah. Thank you very much for sharing an insight into some of the work that you're doing here at Canberra Grammar and the wider community as well. So thank you, and really appreciate your time. No, thanks for having me. Thanks a lot, Matt. Thank you, David. That was Matt Purcell, head of digital learning at Canberra Grammar School. For more information on GovHack or the Microsoft HoloLens and the software that the Canberra Grammar students developed, check out the links in the show notes. If you're enjoying the podcast, please rate us and leave a nice review. It helps others to find the podcast and helps me to review and improve the show as well. If you'd like to get in touch or want to let me know about an experiential education program you're running, please drop us a line through the website. Join us next week as we explore more great stories and ideas for experiential education.